I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself wanting uh, control. I like to be in control. I like to know that I have things figured out. I like to have uh, my life in order. And um, I like to feel at some point, uh, some you know, in some places where you feel like uh, you're, you've got it all together. And one of the uh, difficult things for us is to recognize that we don't. And sometimes for us, it's uh, very difficult. Uh, sometimes if my life begins to seem like it's out of control, then you could, or I could, or you could, we can quickly begin to try to fix that. And we do it by, oftentimes, we'll hurt other people in the process. We'll do whatever we can do to be king of the mountain. And so we'll knock people out of the way. That could be someone in our family. That could, that could be someone at work. Whatever it takes to stay on top and to be in control, we'll do whatever uh, we, we have to to make that happen. And I think it's important that we think about our lives and we look honestly at who we are and uh, where we are and really how we're viewing life. Because it, really, this psalm, you might say, well, this is about the nations and about uh, uh, God's King, Jesus. And it, it, it really doesn't speak too much to me individually. But I think that would be very unwise because you can look at your life and say, uh, very likely, a lot of your conflict in your life with others is tied to you wanting to be on the throne. And you will do whatever it takes to get that place. And so, uh, as we get started this morning, I hope you think about that as we move ahead. Let's pray. Father, we are ask you to remind us today of, of who we are. Let us see with clarity uh, so that we might know ourselves well in light of who you are and what you're doing. So that we might see where we may be struggling to follow after you, to walk in your ways and to yield to you. We, we are called to submit to you in everything. And we know when we rightly humble ourselves before you that we will not only serve you, but we'll serve others. And that we'll put others above ourselves. We'll think of others more important than ourselves. We just pray today that you would, by your power, your spirit, awaken us to and sober us up to the reality that you are king and we are not. In Christ's name, amen. So last week we started our study in the Psalms. Uh, and we said that we would do this for several months and then we'll take a break from the Psalms and then come back to them at some point in the future, if the Lord allows us to do that. And so we will uh, want we want to do that. We'd love to work through all of them. But we're just going to take several of them. Now, the Psalms, if you you know, you go to your Bible, you open it up in the middle, you'll hit the Psalms. They are in the middle of the Bible. And, and one author I mentioned this last week said they are in the middle, just like uh, the, the temple is in the middle of the, the children of Israel's uh, uh, camp. Because they're, they're the center of, of really worship. And so these psalms really are. They're songs. And they're songs to be sung by the people of God. And you, you know, throughout church history, people have uh, done that. They'll sing the psalms because it was a part of that. Now, it also had this ability for like when you sing songs corporately, 
oftentimes you may find yourself singing those on an individual basis. And uh, you may not want everybody to hear that, but you do do that. And you think of them and they rehearse truths in your mind. In the Psalms, a lot of times, as you meditate on those and think about them, you will be able to um, be reminded of wonderful things about God and His interaction with us. And they're very valuable for the life of not only the corporate church gathering, but the individual private meeting with God and also for your family, your children to 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 read and and, and sing the psalms uh, with them or other spiritual songs that we sing. They're valuable for our families. Now, we said the psalms were broken up into five books and we are in book one. The first 41 chapters are, are, are um, like the first book in the psalms. And so you kind of Get that in your mind. We said last week, we looked at Psalm 1. We said it was a wisdom psalm. It's asking you to consider which road you're going to be on because the two roads lead to two different destinations. Some people would say Psalm 1 is an introductory psalm that is saying, listen, look for, look, read through the rest of these psalms and, and, and you choose life. The Psalms are leading you to the way in which you might interact with God and know Him intimately. You choose that way. Other people would say you almost need to read Psalm 1 and 2 together as uh, the two Psalms that kind of introduce the Psalms. And so Psalm 2 this morning, we're going to look at that and we're going to see it's a kingship Psalm. It's about uh, a king that, that God has placed on the throne. In this psalm, we see human rebellion and pride and, and it really at its finest. We see it at, at, at its height, kind of. We see God's anger against human rebellion. And then we see who God has placed on the throne. Christ has been placed on the throne. He has authority over all. And we're left at the end of the psalm with this invitation You choose to follow Him. You submit to Him. You yield your life to Him. That is your only hope. And so uh, one guy explained this uh, Psalm 2 in this way. In spite of the repeated attempts of man to resist God's kingdom, the Lord has established His Son as Lord over all and invites sinners to come and embrace Him now before His wrath is unleashed. And so that psalm could be summarized in that way. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when you read one and two potentially together, you get to one and you say there's two ways to live that lead to two different destinations. And we could say chapter two kind of lays out two choices. We either humbly submit to the son or we choose not to. If we bow before him, we will find refuge in the coming judgment. But if we choose not to, we will be dashed to pieces. That psalm is very, very clear. About the road that we choose is the most important. That road between choosing Christ, yielding to Him and not, is the most important decision that you will ever face. And so I I would say some today, some of you, uh, may have spent your whole lives in rebellion against God and His Son. You are right now potentially under His wrath and curse. You will one day face the Son and He will judge you. You are without hope and without God. This psalm for you today is a sobering of you to say you need to repent of your wicked ways and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Others here may have bowed before him. You've kissed the son uh, and you should be filled with hope. Because in the coming judgment. You will find refuge from the storm. He is your ark, as we studied in first Peter, and he is the one who shelters you in the coming days of judgment. This should be a hope filled psalm. And when you see the world in chaos, and that is a reality, we live in a world of chaos when you see that world and you there are many people that you talk to that are constantly worried about where this world is going to the point where they almost could lose sight of there is a king who reigns on the throne. If you're there, you need to be reminded that he reigns, that his sovereignty never ceases. He reigns over all so. Let's look at chapter two in verse one and just I want you to think and one guy outlined this with in a a way that maybe is memorable. I don't know. He calls two, one through three as the insurrection against God. He says the human race is united in its rebellion against God's rule, a revolt that was climaxed at the first coming of Christ. So let's look at verses one through three. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations here are presented as rebels against God and his anointed. If you studied the history of Israel, there was all the time when because uh, this idea of sonships all the way through where God, we're going to speak of today, God's son here, but we're. What you'll see is the nations gather around the people of God and there might be fear and they're frightened and they're wondering uh, what's going to take place as the nations gather, as the nations come against them. You see leaders throughout the the history of, of Israel's journey through this world. You'll see leaders like Pharaoh who will come against God and they'll say, who are, who are you talking about? Who is this God? Or Nebuchadnezzar who will get on top of his uh, city, on the wall of his city and look out and say, look what I've made. And he'll think about in the pride of his heart how great he is. Or you kind of get to Daniel and you you maybe we, we remember we talked about a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who who attacked the Lord's temple. And there's always the nations are raging and they're always wanting to exalt themselves above God. They want to throw off his rule. They see themselves in a place of authority and they believe that they are in charge of the universe. We said, uh, really, this kind of points to the ultimate rejection when we see Jesus in his arrest and trial and sentence to death. As he worked with all those leaders and he, he comes before them, they try to show their authority over him, their power over him. They'll even say things like, uh, don't you know that I have the power to give you life and death? Don't you know? And, and they're, they're rejecting the son. They are rejecting him. They're not honoring him. They see themselves as superior to him. And ultimately, these people, both Jewish leaders and Gentile leaders in the crucifixion of Christ are there on display and they're they're, they're putting him down under judgment. They stand there as the judge over him is kind of the picture. And so they do not honor him. We'll see that as we move forward, even into the book of Revelation, where you'll see that the nations will gather to crush the son. They want to destroy him and defeat him. 
So again, when we see this word anointed, this is pointing ultimately to the one who God has placed above all things. He is speaking of Jesus. He is God's son who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. These kings unite in their rebellion and they say together, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. It's saying they've tried to bound us in some way. We will break free. We will throw off their rule. The Bible says that all men everywhere, do, they do not seek after God. Instead, they turn aside from him. They are always seeking to rebel against God. This is the default of humanity. That, that is by our very nature and, and our choices. We see a rebel. That, that's just the way it is. I was telling Anna um, this morning, I think it was this morning, uh, that I read an article that was written about parenting and, and uh, that I'd probably been a little too soft lately with uh, William. I, I, I will tell him sometimes to do something and then he lingers and I'll say it again and he lingers and you think at what point do we stop that right because he needs to know authority he 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 needs authority he needs that in his life God designed him to have an authority in his life he has placed his parents there to guide him and so what I have to do is go back and think, and I even before I left this morning, he was up early, I sat down with him and said, know this, that from now on, when dad says you are going to do it, you are going to do it now. And it's, it's one of those things where he, he's got to learn that because here's the thing, he is raging within. He wants to overthrow authority. And if he doesn't learn it now, he will pay later, right? And so the nations you see as a, just like a, not saying he's a spoiled little brat and it's going to be like, what are you doing? It's not, but the nations, the nations, just like a, a, a little child who does not know authority and just is spoiled and does whatever they want. You see a king who over time gets that and he gets this place of authority and he can do whatever he wants. It will drive them mad and they can't stand anyone to come and to hold them accountable. They want to throw off. And if they begin to do that, they throw off God. They will come under his judgment. It is a dangerous thing for in any way for us to not live under God's rule. To live under God's rule is the blessing. To live outside of his control and rule is a curse. And you may think for the moment it feels like a blessing, but you will pay. You will pay. And again, that's why we train our children to say you will not Throw off God's rule, which is mediated through your parents. Because one day, if you continue in that, you will pay so dearly you could never imagine. So we see the nations rebelling. It's in a foolish attempt. It's a delusional attempt. <laughs> they act as if they have the ability to throw off God's rule. It's insanity. It is really like, again, you know, just to mention, but it's like William saying, I'm going to 
to just push my dad away and I'm going to fight him off and I'm going to overthrow him. That's insanity. He cannot do that. He's not at that place. He's three years old. He's this tall. He can't do it. He can rage all he wants, but he has no authority to do so. So we not only see this rebellion, the human rebellion against God, but we also see <clears throat> that this this what when this guy again, the eyes, he says we see the insurrection against God and the indignation of God in two, four through six. In spite of man's sinful revolt against heaven, God remains the unrivaled sovereign Lord. He laughs at man's feeble attempt to thwart his eternal purposes. It's it is it's just shocking to hear them do this. Verse four through six. He who sits in the heavens laugh, the, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God laughs at this foolish display this is not a laughter like he thinks it's funny i guess you note that here you can see that here god mocks them for their insanity they are shaking their fist at god and saying we will throw off your rule we will be god we can handle life by ourselves we are in charge we are in control and it's so Shocking. It should shock us. And we see God mocking them for this foolishness. This is we, we talk about Psalms. It's in the the, the um, particular, I guess you could say, genre in the Bible of wisdom literature. It, it's wisdom literature. And what you see is these people are the opposite of wise. They are foolish in every way. In their pride and rebellion, they act as if they are in charge. This, this passage blows your mind because as you move forward, God mocks them and then you see His divine fury. He turns from laughter to fury and He speaks and He rebukes them. And you see that again on display. God's holiness he, in His holiness, He must punish wickedness. A lot of times when I talk with somebody and I'm sharing the gospel with them, that's the first point. God is holy. God is holy. And you have offended Him. You have rebelled against Him. He hates sin. He cannot tolerate sin. So it's not like you say, hey, I was just kind of... If you created your own God, this is what you might come to. You might say, okay, I'm going to come up with my own God and my God is going to be cool with me coming to Him and saying, well, I messed up in the past, but now I want to be good in the present. Are you cool with that? That, that, that would be our God. You meet people all the time doing this. I know I've done a lot of wicked things, but I'm a pretty good person and we're okay now. Because I say that you're great and I'm not. But that's not how it works. And God's, God has to punish sin. That Jesus didn't die on the cross because sin didn't really need to be dealt with. He died on the cross because you deserved to, to be there yourself. And Jesus took your place. 
And so sin must be punished. God in his holiness must punish wickedness and rebellion. He is Lord of the universe. And when we reject his rule, punishment must come. God terrifies them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he's saying to them, I have set up the king. You do not create the king. You are not the kings of the earth. You do not control this world. It may appear that you do. In your mind, in your delusional mind, you think you reign, but you do not. He says Zion is it's a reference to Jerusalem, but I think it even maybe we would say points further than that as we see it developed in the New Testament all the way again through Revelation, the heavenly Jerusalem that the Lord sets in heaven and he is on his throne and at his right hand is the anointed one in this heavenly Jerusalem that will come crashing down on earth on the final day. And so I think it's just important that we understand that. Now, the other thing is just to to note that when he speaks of the kings, we know that in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to David, the king of Israel, and he said to him, I will establish your house forever. And he's speaking again of this, this Davidic line. And what we find out later is Jesus is the son of David of the Davidic line. And he comes, the eternal son of God comes to earth and the kingdom of God comes when he comes. And so he is the king that, uh, of David in that sense. And his kingdom will last forever. We see in Psalm 110, you can just write this down. We don't we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but it says the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. It's this picture that God is setting up a king who is over all his enemies are his footstool. They are under him. They are under his authority. They sit there not as equals, but they sit there in submission to him. So we kind of see this laid out here as Jesus as the authority over all. So the first part, two, one through three, is, is the emphasis on human rebellion. Climax in the first coming of Jesus. The second part here we see is in spite of man's rebellion against heaven, God is reigning forever. He is over all and he laughs at our feeble attempts to overthrow him. The third thing you see here is we see God's intention. God has decreed something. His son, the Messiah, will execute that decree and basically he will be given an eternal inheritance that, that's the picture that you see on display here. We see in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask in me, of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's Vessel. So we see God's intention or the intention of God in verses seven through nine. Now the son speaks and he's referring to what the father has told him. The father has decreed upon the son his rightful place. He 
reigns. He calls him his son. The kings were called sons of God. They had, there, was a, there was an element in Israel where they would be over time called the sons of God. And even in, in, in broader literature at this time where the kings would be seen at some points, there were times where they saw themselves as part God, kind of. But, but the idea here as a son of God is that unique role of governing the kingdom of God. The, the kings were the stewards of God's kingdom with all the rights and privileges of sons. They managed the kingdom. Now, um, when it says that today I have begotten you, we think of like a, a birthing a child, kind of that's maybe the first place we kind of come to. But we know Jesus is the eternal son of God with no beginning and no end. He, he has had that place forever. He is singularly the begotten of the father, the unique son. But he is the eternal son of God. He has had this position forever. He created the world. The world was created through him. So there is this kind of eternal aspect of sonship. Jesus has always had that place. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Again, hold your place in Psalm 2. Turn to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Because I think this is one of those passages that kind of summarizes uh, much of who Jesus is, both in his person and in his work. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We see here Jesus' eternal sonship, but we also see the temporal aspect of his sonship. And I'll explain that. We, we Again, we said Jesus is the eternal son of God who always has been and has always existed. But he also had a temporal work to do. The father had called upon him to do something, do something very clearly. He came to live, die, was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven and he was seated at the right hand of God. Now, what we say is in his ascension, he becomes Lord over everything he gets the title of lord philippians 2 9 through 11 says therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed of him the name above every name so that the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father so you've just got to think about like this psalm what's going on we start and you see the rebellion of the nations. Then we see God looking at their rebellion and saying how foolish they are for rebelling against him. And why is that? Because he has placed his king, his son on the throne. He reigns over all. That, that's the presentation here. And how foolish God, God proclaims to them how foolish they are because he has placed his king on the throne. 
And not only that. The nations, although they are raging. The reality is they are owned by the sun. They can rage all they want, but they are owned by the sun. I want to turn to one more passage with you to, to, to see this kind of on display. And it's in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 through 35. In this passage, we're going to see an image that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar has in a dream. And we see that they represent the image represents different kingdoms until a, a kingdom comes that crushes all of them. Notice in Daniel 2, verse 31 through 35. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its middle and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like like the chap of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. What's that picturing? Saying God's kingdom is established and it will last forever. There is nothing that you, you should fear. If you're a child of God here today, we should not be afraid. He reigns over all. Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe. And all the kings may fight against him and establish themselves. And all them, they may fight in ways that just blow your mind. You think, how could God really be on the throne? But he does reign on the throne. And that is what is on display here. God says, I have given my son the nation's handed them to him in one sense when you look at this and you see this on you see he the nations are his heritage and the ends of the earth your possession he has all of them and so there's this picture of he has the ability to judge them if he is king over them he has the ability to judge them and in their rebellion he will stamp it out he says, you, he, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. He's saying, you will have the ability to judge the nations. They are, they are yours. They're your possession. The whole earth is owned by you. You've been given the title Lord and you reign over all. Now, if you just stop there, if this psalm stopped right there, You would say the world is in rebellion against God. God has said, I have placed my ruler on the throne and my ruler will judge the world justly and they will be condemned. If you just left it there, you would be like, dude, are you where's the hope in that? Where is the hope in that? But notice in verse 10 through 12, we see an invitation from God. Sinners are called upon to. To give up their rebellion and humble themselves in submission to the Son and embrace Him before it's too late. Notice verse 10. 
Now, therefore, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. We see here that kings are told to be wise. Remember when we studied in first Peter where it says be sober minded. This psalm should stop the kings of the earth and say, wake up, sober up. Do you understand? And really, you might say, well, if that's just to the kings, I'm saying to you, if you're here today and you've been living your whole life uh, separated from God in rebellion against him, I would say sober up. This is a time to listen. If you fail to listen to these words, you will, will embrace death. And destruction and eternity without God. These are ultimate words. This is a call for you to embrace the truth right here. Sober up. Stop resisting God. You should be wise. This is both a call to be wise and a warning. If you continue in your foolish ways, you'll be damned. If you listen and heed the warning and respond rightly, you will be rescued. He says, instead of living in rebellion, serve the Lord with fear. Give him his proper place. Rejoice with trembling. It's this idea of like there, there's kind of that picture of God. He is holy. And there's this, this, this idea that he is Lord and he reigns over all. And there's something of that that should produce in us a silence, a, 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 a quietness, a, 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 a really like a, a reverence. And at the same time, that should bring joy into our hearts. It's kind of like uh, you just could think of it this way. It's almost like uh, being um, if you think of the most powerful person you've ever known. And there's one sense where you respect and revere them. And at the same time, when they say, come in, you're welcomed into the family. Although you revere them, you also are filled with joy. It's kind of this 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 humble uh, fear that produces Joy it says, be, "Kiss the sun." This is the idea. It's, a lot of people even say the best way to present it is it's like kneeling on the floor with your face down, and all that's left is you are coming up to the footstool and you are kissing his feet in a, in a, in a picture of humbling yourself before him. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish. So it is a picture of you kneeling down, crawling up to the throne in an attitude of total humility and submission, kissing the son that he might not be angry with you, but bless you. This is an invitation to give him wholehearted allegiance. It's so important that you see that, that we see that. Now, I want you, I told you one last verse, I want you to look at one more book. I want you to turn to John chapter 5 because I think it really summarizes what's going on here. John 5 verses 21 through 29. It's just amazing here that God would graciously allow us to see the only hope that we have and so clearly present it to us. Before the wrath of the Son is unleashed, that we might find refuge in Him. I want you to see this in John 5 again, 21 through 29. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear Him will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And as He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is a call to say, come to the Son. Bow before the Son. Do what is good. That is, submit to the Son today. Do it and you will live. I read an illustration this week of of a... uh, (laughs) <laughs> like the Roman times after Constantine. Constantine made Christianity like the, the, uh, the, the religion of the empire. But after uh, Constantine died, another emperor rose up and he reinstated all the, the temple worship that they had done before and rejected what Constantine had done. One time when this, this new emperor was uh, wanting to entertain some of his friends, he went after like a believer named Agaton. And he said to him, this is because all the Christians were dying and all that. And he said, how is your carpenter of Nazareth? Is he finding work these days? Without hesitation, this Christian replied, he is perhaps taking time away from building mansions for the faithful to build a coffin for your empire. History has clearly revealed the kingdoms and the kings of the earth and all those subject to their kingdoms who embrace their way of rebellion. They will perish. There is coming a day when those who do not kiss the sun will be damned. But those who do. Those who come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Those who embrace. Here's the amazing thing. The son that they reject is the one who died on the cross for them. But he is, there's coming a day when all those who have come to the Lord in repentance and faith. And trusted in Jesus alone for their salvation. They will be, have an eternity with him. And yet those who do not will meet Jesus. Not as the suffering servant but as the reigning Lord and judge of the universe. I want to say to you today, wherever you are, you need to find yourself in the sun. Come to him, repent, turn to him in faith. And if you have trusted him, remember, Jesus did not just save us to sit here. He saved us that we might go into the world He said, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Therefore, he commissioned his people go and make disciples of the nations. May we do that well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity we have to study it. 
I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that would be known by our humiliation, our humbleness towards the Lord, our, our, our lives of total gratitude and of submission to the King. Pray that we would, our, our, the way we live would tell others that we have a King who reigns on the throne and we, we want to be good subjects of His kingdom. We ask you to do that in our hearts and our lives. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand with me at this time.